Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Our text for our sermon is Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. To remind you of that account, I will read the first three verses. Jesus spoke to them again in parables. He said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent out his servants to summon those who are invited to the wedding banquet, but they did not want to come. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Revelation chapter 19 verses 4 through 9 explains our text. The wedding feast is for the Lamb. The Lamb is Jesus Christ who died for our sins after having lived perfectly for us. And every time the Holy Spirit works through that message to create faith in someone's heart, he puts a wedding dress on that person. Kind of girly language to talk for us guys, because in America here, we don't wear dresses if you're men, right? But he puts that white wedding dress of Christ's righteousness on you. And there is a wedding banquet. Now, we want to understand, when God talks, God is above time. And like in our prophecy for today, Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9, sometimes it's a, we call it telescoping prophecy, where there's a great fulfillment and a lesser fulfillment. And the great fulfillment is that all who are the bride of Christ, the invisible church, will have the culmination of time in being forever in paradise in the new heavens and the new earth with a glorified body, where all sin will be removed. But this also happens in a lesser way in the invisible church now. You see, God prepares a feast for you and feeds you to keep you prepared for the big feast Every time you gather around the word and sacrament and hear of your need for a savior and the fact that your savior has come and through that the Holy Spirit nourishes your faith and keeps you strong. So in Psalm 23, we can confess that he prepares a table before us right in the presence of our enemies. He feeds us well even now. So the banquet has two fulfillments. What you get in the invisible church being fed by the means of grace and the ultimate fulfillment when we receive eternal paradise. So today we see in our text that all are invited to the Lamb's High Feast, yet few are elect. And we're already told how the Lord had prepared a wedding banquet for them, and then he sent out his servants. And you notice in verse 3 it says to those who had already been invited. They've already received the invitation. This wedding banquet was not a shock to them, or should not have been. It didn't, should not have caught them by surprise. So in Jesus' time, the ultimate fulfillment of this was the Jewish people who rejected him. God had set up the entire nation of Israel. He had given them all those laws that they would shine out with holiness, but especially to show that they needed a savior and tell the world, here is where salvation is to be found. By their birth as children of Abraham, they were supposed to have the word of God. They had the invitation. And when Christ came... They shouted, crucify, crucify, not every last one of them. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not kid ourselves. This happens when people, for example, are born to among Christian parents and they are brought up in the word and then they reject it. So we see here that there are people, they've already been invited. God is not being unfair. He sets up the ways and prepares things for him. But when they don't want to come, that he sends out other servants. He gives another invitation. 
Don't miss how gracious our Lord is in continually coming and say, Come, come to my word and sacraments, so that you will be there at the culmination, the great feast of all eternity. And there's an urgency. He's the king sends out those that second round of servants with that message. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. Before that, he says, I've prepared my banquet. My bulls and my fattened cattle have all been slaughtered. Now, we can forget this. I'll just put it in the refrigerator, put it in the freezer for another day. They didn't have freezers. When you slaughtered for a big banquet, the time to eat it was that day. There was an urgency before the food would spoil. And there is an urgency for us not to reject the Lord's invitation. Because when Christ does come on Judgment Day, or if tomorrow is our last day, whenever our soul is separated from our body in death, that's it. If you believed, you get the culminating feast. If you did not, it spoils, and you spend an eternity in hell, where Jesus says there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what do the people do with this urgent message? Well, let's look at the excuses that are given to reject it. We're told in verse 5, yet they could not care less and took off, some to his own field and others to oversee his own business. Farmers had to get back to work in their minds, and the businessmen, they had to get back to business. Isn't it easy for us, worrying about providing for the clothes on our back that we need and the roof over our head, isn't it easy for us to get concerned with work and forget that we need to rest in the Word of God, to find rest from a guilty conscience, to find rest from the devil's attacks and be strengthened by the Holy Spirit through that word, to find rest knowing our sins are forgiven and God is not our enemy but our heavenly daddy. But it wasn't just, I got to work. Behind that is the excuse, I'm too busy. I'm too busy with the things of this world. I'm too busy making sure that I get to go snowmobiling or I'm too busy making sure that I get to my hobbies. I'm too busy because I need to rest on Sundays and sleep in. I'm too busy. And they rob themselves of a great banquet, a great feast. There's another excuse that is given besides uh, I'm too busy, I've got to work and, and distracted by worldly ways. And that's the excuse given in verse six. There'll be one more excuse following that. But verse six says the rest seized his servants, mistreated them and murdered them. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a saying here, don't shoot the messenger. That's what they did. When you shoot the messenger, you tell the person who sent the message, I hate you. That's what it boiled down to. You've invited me lovingly to a wedding banquet. I hate you. I don't want that wedding banquet. And so they killed his messengers. Yes, this began with killing the son. Yes, this began with men like Saul, who then went out and hunted down Christians, finding a legal recourse in the Roman Empire allowed to do that, hunting down Christians so they could be killed for blasphemously worshiping the true Son of God, although they weren't really blasphemously doing this. This continued through ten plagues of persecution that came from the Roman government. It continued in the Inquisition. It continued in the Reformation. Brothers and sisters in Christ, behind it all is that message, I hate God. And we can see it today, not just in supposed Christians who reject the message, but we see it in God-hating atheism. We see it in the news. We see it in Hollywood. It is literally shoved down our throats and it's force-fed to our children, often by teachers in our own schools trying to brainwash them to hate God. 
Now, lots of times Christians get confused and they make God a milk toast God. A God who just, I don't care whatever you do, I just love you. Go ahead and kill my son. That is not what's said here. So the king became angry, dispatched his troop, destroyed those murderers and burned their cities. He burned down the work of their hands. That is hell. And God has a way of showing those who persecute his little lambs, even in this life, I am not letting you get away with this. Then there's that last rejection. So he sends out servants. When the people who were invited reject it, he sends out servants to get everybody. And we're told both the good and bad are invited. Like Saul I mentioned, Jesus appears on the road on his way to Damascus and he converts him and he becomes the Apostle Paul. Both the good and the bad, prostitutes, tax collectors, those people we don't want to be seen in our church, these are the bad, and yet he even invites them by his grace. He sent out those people to places like Germany and Europe where my pagan ancestors knew nothing of the true God, and it was passed on from one generation to the next. So he sends them out, but we're told this one problem. Verse 11, then the king came in to look at the guests, and he saw a man who had not clothed himself with a wedding robe. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, in our current climate, with our worldview here in America, we have made victimhood a wonderful thing. Everybody wants to be a victim so they can cry out how they've been victimized. And so recently we look at this text wrong. We turn around and we say, that poor guy, he's on the crossroads, he gets invited to a wedding, and then the king ultimately has the guy killed because he didn't have a wedding robe. What did he expect? That's not the case. Now, historically, we do know at the time of Jesus, when very wealthy people held a wedding banquet, they had robes that people would wear. So the wedding robe is supplied. But our text itself explains it all, even if we don't know the history, and that's in verse 12. So the king says to him, Friend, how is it that you have entered here and do not have a wedding robe? In modern English, this was a jacket-only restaurant. You didn't get in past the maitre d' without the jacket. So brothers and sisters in Christ, logic we can deduce. We don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure it out. The guy had a wedding robe on and he took it off. That's how he got past the maitre d'. What is the wedding robe? It is Christ's righteousness. It is faith. So that when God looks at you as a member of the invisible church, he sees Christ's righteousness and holiness. And when he looks at Christ, he sees your sins are paid in full. This is a person who was a believer. But they rejected Christ's righteousness. Maybe like Martin Luther discovered in the Reformation, believing the teachings, they rejected the righteousness, this person, because they thought, there's saints, there's, there's monks out there who are holier than me, and I could buy an indulgence. And I can buy righteousness that other men have earned. Not Christ's righteousness, other men and women's righteousness. Or maybe like happens blasphemously, where people are assigned a penance to do, and they think that by doing that penance, then they earn or participate in their forgiveness. That is work righteousness. And after Martin Luther truly became Lutheran and his doctrine truly scriptural, he got it all ironed out and he is roaring and he has, God has sent others to help him roar like, like the men who held up Moses' hands. But there were others who rode in, the reformed, the schwermerai, the enthusiasts, the Luther called them that swimming around like a bean, keeps swatting at it, you can't quite kill it, keeps trying to sting you. Because these people, like Arminius, they taught 
that you do your best and then God will do the rest. That is taking off the robe of Christ's righteousness, ripping a portion of it off and sewing on your own righteousness. It's taking off the wedding banquet. Whenever we want to brag as if something we do has saved us, we're taking off that robe. I've given the offerings. I come to church the right amount of times. I made the right decision. Whenever we do that, we who are in the invisible church are taking off the robe of Christ and saying, no, thank you, God. I want my own righteousness. And it doesn't matter if it's just 1% I want my own righteousness or 100%. We're taking off the robe of Christ. Look at the excuses that one way or the other, and in many cases, all the way around in our lifetimes, we in our sinful nature can give. I'm too busy. i got to earn a living. There are too many worldly distractions. I outright hate God or, no, thank you, Lord. You gave me your righteousness. I'll go in my own. And when he calls out the man, he's tongue-tied. He cannot respond because he knows he couldn't get into that wedding banquet without a robe on. He knows he's taken it out. And that's the culmination there of Judgment Day. The man says, Bind this man feet and hands and throw him out into the darkness, specifically the most remote, the most furthest out. He's saying, Get away! Get him away from the city. Thursday night when I, when I came into town here around Alcova, you could start seeing the lights of Casper as if the sun was just a little bit left. He's going to get him out there so they don't even see the light. The true torture of hell, brothers and sisters in Christ, even the most God-hating atheist in this world, does not know what it is like to be completely abandoned and separated by God. And that is the true torture of hell. And Jesus then comments what's that like by saying the weeping and the gnashing of teeth are there. It's a culminating weeping. They know, they put themselves there, and they're sorrowful. They have nobody else to blame. And the gnashing of their teeth, that is eternal pain. And that pain is spiritual being separated from God. And yes, it is a physical pain as they are given their bodies unglorified to burn in the flames of the lake of sulfur. But that's not what's for you or I, brothers and sisters in Christ. After going through all those excuses, Jesus wraps it up with verse 14 by saying, For many are invited, yet few are... And we translate that word chosen, but wherever that word comes up in the epistles, we translate it as elect. Let me read that to you again. And think, God's talking to you. For many are invited, yet few are elect. God predestined you. Before he said, let there be light, he chose you. He planned out in all history that his word would come to you. And if you're like me, yes, as a younger man, there was a time I kicked against that. I didn't want to come to the Sunday feast of his means of grace. But he sent out other messengers. He kept working. He said, Fred, you will fight this, but I will keep you. That's the comfort of the doctrine of election or predestination. Now we want to play the game, why me and not others? Well, God should send us all to hell. None of us deserve it. So it's a comfort to hear when you're kicking, God is saying, I'm not going to let you go. And how can you know that promise is yours? Go to the scriptures, be in them and hear him. He's talking to you. He's promising you. It's when we're falling away from scripture that we need to hear the law. Don't reject it. So look at what God did to prepare for you. He prepares a wedding banquet and he sends out those who'd already been invited. He'd already invited you by election. Now, if you're in shoes like mine, God ruled over time in history that I was born to Christian parents who would seal that Holy Spirit in my heart when I was very young, an infant, in the baptismal font. He'd already invited me. 
Blessed to be born to Christian parents. For others, he already invites us by sending friends into our lives and he, they will keep sharing the word until one day that Holy Spirit enters in and the light bulb goes off. And then when we kick against it, look at how he sends out other servants and says, listen to the urgency, come, come, come. So when we have people who are falling away from the word, not coming to feed themselves in the means of Christ, you have the blessing of being his servant and saying, come, let's, let's get you fed again. You're starving yourself. Oh, and when those who reject it, I already mentioned, you know, I can stand back at all looking at how God ruled over time in history, that at some point in time a missionary came somewhere around Hanover, Germany, and the Schuermann family, who most certainly were pagans, began to believe. And one generation after the other shared that. It went out not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, and it's still going on in this world, and we get to be his mouthpieces. And every Sunday, he's allowed our church, we designate a time where we set aside an hour for Bible study, maybe an hour and five minutes, depending on how talkative pastor is, and an hour to be fed with the means of grace. The first and third Sunday of the month, he gives us a special banquet he prepared for us where we literally receive his body and blood and we who make up his body, the church, are knit together and knit and strengthened in forgiveness with our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, many were invited. That's John 3.16. He invites the whole world. But he elected you. And he has literally, we can say he has worked hard. To bring you to and keep you in the salvation his son has won for you. So we rejoice, brothers and sisters in Christ, because you are elect. You are invited to the Lamb's High Feast. You're at the feast now. It culminates in the big wedding feast that will be yours. Scripture assures you of that. And so he has worked to fight against your sinful nature that you don't give all those excuses. I'm too busy. There's too many worldly distractions. I got to work. I hate God. I have my own righteousness. Through his word, he keeps you there so that what the work that he has done, he has set your place at the banquet and he keeps you there and keeps you nourished through his Holy Spirit and the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. And now you are blessed because you are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Amen.